Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 151 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we scream into the void because we just can't (laughs) handle the madness that is the film conversation i'm karen peterson joined as always by lauren humphreys brooks oh just screaming into the void so much these days it sometimes just feels like how dumb are you people like how how stupid do you have to be to make some of these arguments it's amazing it's absolutely it's yeah it's, I believe in incredible. people learning. I believe in education and knowledge and in acquiring things. And then sometimes I'm just like, okay, but first of all, shut up. Second of <laughs> all, don't speak. Uh, third of all, if you're going to speak, don't say something like profoundly stupid and easily disprovable. Like there have been more things on the internet this week that I've just been like, this is literally wrong. Like it's not even a debatable point. This is actually wrong. <laughs> It's amazing how <laughs> comfortable some people are in just being wrong. It's it's just yeah. There, oh, there's so much of this, and and yes, opinions can be wrong. Um, I'm just gonna say. It. Now there are many, many, many caveats to that, but yeah, sometimes your opinion is just not correct. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so. Uh, before we get to that, Lauren, how's your week been? It's it's been all right. It's been all right. I feel like everything and nothing has been happening. It's like it's in a weird space right now. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. It's been such a weird week. It was funny because like Thursday night, I was doing something, or I don't know, Thursday thursday at some point i was doing something and i looked at my calendar for work and i realized like wait we're still in a week where i had monday off (laughs) it feels like i haven't had a day off in months and i had one three days ago and uh there's there's always been something about this time of year for me at least that like february and march are like these weird limbo months where Mm -hmm it's not not they pass really quickly but they also don't pass at all it's very bizarre yeah um and i think that it's even it's exacerbated by you know this pandemic and everything and the fact that march lasted for like a thousand years last year yeah well and it feels like in some ways like we never left march (laughs) yeah i keep thinking about like oh let's see march 6th last year i let's see we had the oscars were over like for a month they'd been over um i had all these plans i was still scrambling to figure out what i was gonna do with south by um because kristen had canceled because she got the job at indiewire and wasn't able to go anymore and so i was trying to find a new roommate it was like all this stuff like this time last year south by still had not been canceled and yeah but by the end of next week it will have been oh yeah yeah (laughs) 
Yeah. It's, it's, and then that's the other thing is like, it's so crazy how everything was minute by minute last year, last March, and how it was just like, well, right now this is what's happening. And, mm-hmm. you know, we left for uh, spring break on March 13th for my job. And when we, when I said goodbye to all my tutors that, that day, it was like, all right, well, have a good spring break. I'll see you guys in a week, I guess. Cause there was talk that like some of the schools had shut down, but our school was very committed to staying open. Like they were going to ride this out. And I believed that they would try if they could. And it took until halfway through the next week before they finally were basically told like, no, you have to close. So, wow. Yeah. It was was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It got to even the point where it was like, um, like the county I live in gave a stay at home order and the county I work in did not. So I was like, okay, well, which county do I go by? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what to do here. (laughs) Well, and I have to say I was in New York city. So that was very exciting in March and April, particularly being in New York. It was like, and, and I, think it, I think the most exciting part about it was less actually being there and more the people outside of the city. Like, I, I mean, and, and I, I don't make fun of them at all for it. And in fact, I'm grateful for it. The number of people that like called me or messaged me just like, are you okay? Is everything okay? Oh my God, what is happening? I'm, I've seen the pictures of Times Square. And I was like, uh, we're fine we're like sitting in (laughs) indoors because that's what we're supposed to be doing and like that's pretty much it but it it was this weird space where obviously a lot of the country thought that new york had exploded or something it was it looked like every dystopian movie you've ever seen that has images of new york where times square is just vacant and it's like you just walk through the streets and yell hello hello hello." yeah i mean it's definitely it's definitely I've all, I've always said that um, you know that something is really wrong if you ever go to the Times Square subway station and it's empty like mm. you know that something bad has happened <laughs> and when they began showing pictures of like Times Square empty Times Square so I was like oh dear oh that's I really wish I wasn't right about that <laughs> but, yeah <laughs> but yeah it, it was definitely one of those times where it it was it was odd being in the middle of it i guess because for most people unless you were a doctor or a nurse or at a certain point an essential worker all the rest of us were just like all right well we're just gonna not leave i guess until we're told that we can because <laughs> mm-hmm. so that was pretty much our lives yeah, yeah it was wild yeah it's been crazy times crazy times but here we are it's been we're almost at the one year anniversary of all of this which is just wow um and we're still here so but you know what here. you know what we have a better administration there's a there are not just one va- vaccine but multiple vaccines people are getting vaccinated people are like being able to actually begin to go places and see other human beings and it's Mm -hmm. slow and it's not moving as fast as any of us want it to but we're actually moving in the right direction amazingly enough (laughs) yeah definitely definitely it's like I've already had my first dose and that was like it was getting to the point where I just kept getting you know so much pushback and like this wasn't working out and that wasn't working and oh call this number but then they never answer the phone and then go and here it was it was getting so frustrating and then it was like all of a sudden just 
crazy just like so fast i had an appointment for the first one and it was like they automatically schedule you because it's the moderna so they automatically schedule you for four weeks out for the next one because mm-hmm. you have to be able to get it within that time frame and so it was just like oh i've been waiting 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 and then boom it's it's like done you know yeah. so it's yeah it's been a lot of that but anyway yeah. but here we are and <laughs> last night we had the hollywood critics association film awards which was a lot of fun that's one of the groups that i'm in and i have to say there there are some things that i was like scratching my head a little bit but um for the most part i think we did a damn good job we gave birds of prey like two or three awards um I am very disappointed that you did not give them all the awards because um, it was the it was, best movie of 2020. Yeah, but we did give Promising Young Woman Best Picture, which I think is, that's also a very good call. So, uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think we, we did a pretty great job. So, yeah. I, uh, you know, I had some lingering frustration that I haven't really talked about because I don't want to, like, badmouth my own organization on social media or anything but there was a particular um spotlight type of award that was given out last night that um (laughs) the recipient of it was talking about how grateful he is that all his thousands of fans were able to come together to make a certain project happen for him that'll (laughs) be on hbo max later this month and i'm like (laughs) You have the opportunity here to call out toxicity in the fandom and you are just pretending it's not a thing. And I'm not okay with this. If we're going to say that you're, you know, worthy of an award about inspiring people. No. And valiance and yeah. Well, based upon what you have just said, I have an inkling of who you're talking about. I don't know. I was really vague about that. Very vague sense of who this might be. And this particular individual uh, has never called out toxicity in in the fandom in which they make most of their money. So, uh, and and in fact, has denied that it even exists. Mm -hmm. So I'm not surprised by what you're saying at all. Although it is, you know, it's unfortunate. You do kind of wish that people because you you can recognize that there is toxicity within a fandom and also say that you're grateful for the fans who aren't being toxic and they're definitely not there there are fans that are not toxic fans that are just fans yeah and that's okay but there are definitely fandoms that seem to attract a great deal of toxicity or at least a lot of a lot of very loud people who Mm -hmm. make things a lot more difficult for everybody else that's involved yeah like uh obviously this is not the person i was talking about ryan johnson has gotten a lot of um hate and he it's i think it's been easy for him to call it out because a lot of it has been directed at him um you know when people are hashtagging ruin johnson ha 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 so clever (laughs) um i did actually think that was kind of funny but um but one of the things i liked about something he said was like hey you guys don't see all the stuff i get this is really only about five percent of what i've received most people have been really amazing but there are some that are just very loud and that ruin it for everybody else and and uh yeah and and i think that that's true and and in fact i uh 
unfortunately, fortunately, I don't even know what to do with it anymore. I briefly went viral this week <laughs> um, uh, for a tweet about Kelly Marie Tran. And, and actually, honestly, one of the things that surprised me about it, at, when it got to the point where I was just like, oh, this is getting retweeted a lot, I'm scared. Um, Twitter is a horrible place when you're actually like, oh my God, people are engaging with my tweets. No, stop, go away. <laughs> yeah, when you turn on Twitter and you see like 18 notifications, 30 notifications, you're like, yeah. Fuck. What did I do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. One morning I got like a little thing. So like 20 plus notifications. Like, oh shit. Oh no, no. Uh, but but one of the things that I was actually very pleasantly surprised by is that the vast majority of the responses were positive. Yeah, like they're just good. like, yeah, this fandom really treated her badly, you know, like all kinds of things. And there were a few idiots, uh, which you know you kind of expect and is unfortunately too common but the majority were very like i love star wars but also this is this was really terrible and it, it kind of it kind of damaged star wars for me and all this stuff mm -hmm. so i was glad i was kind of glad to see that because i was like oh most people are not psychopaths that's good yeah it's nice to get those little reminders once in a while because <laughs> you know <laughs> you know anyway um, speaking of things that are totally just great, healthy fandoms and definitely not based in any sort of toxicity, uh, there was some stuff with TCM this week that was really fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, this feeds into a lot about what we were talking about last week about this issue of classic film. And, and the week before, for God's sake, God, we talk about this a lot, actually. But the, this issue of classic film and what are classics and, and how we kind of deal with the fact that a lot of these films were made in periods when racism, sexism, homophobia, all kinds of things were not just accepted, but a, a almost necessary part of the culture. Uh, and, and then you get TCM, so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about what happened. I'm going to throw it to you first just because you were the one that called my attention to it. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so TCM is has has decided, and I think that this is a really good idea and a really good thing. TCM has decided to do a series that they're calling Reframed, Classic Films in the Rearview Mirror. And what they're doing is they're showing films that are pro that are at best problematic and at worst like actively racist or sexist or homophobic. Um, and they're trying to kind of, it seems like they're trying to create a dialogue about it. Maybe that's definitely the impression that their website gives that they wanna create this like discussion of these films rather than simply dismissing them or taking them off the air, et cetera, to actually be like, okay, these are influential films. These are films that represent certain things. Let's, let's talk about them. Totally legitimate idea. Yeah. The problem that, that I had with it initially is that I began looking at all of the tweets that the official TCM uh, uh, channel was putting out. And they started with uh, Gone with the Wind. And, and in, in seeing all of the stuff about Gone with the Wind, almost everything that the Twitter feed was saying about Gone with the Wind was how great it was it uh, how empowering it was for women how important it was you know and not just in front of the camera but behind the camera um and talking about how wonderful gone with the wind is 
And I'm sitting there looking at all this. I'm just like, well, this is not what I'm expecting. I mean, isn't the whole point to actually interrogate these films, not say like, well, actually they're not that bad after all. Um, and so then I began looking at a few more things and I actually wound up writing an article that was posted today on our website uh, about this. I, I began looking at, you know, like why does, you know, what, what is TCM doing? And I looked at the films that they're showing in this reframed category. And then you began looking at like what they have on HBO Max, mm -hmm. um, looking at, you know, the kinds of films that they actually show on a regular basis, the films that they're showing this month, which is Women's History Month. And there's more of a problem that I think is beginning to emerge. And it kind of catalyzed a problem for me that I've had with TCM for a while, which is the way in which they shape the cinematic canon. It's, it isn't just that TCM you know, does a great service and they do, they promote and they show a lot of great classic films. And, and that's very important. Some of them lesser known ones. But when you begin to look at the films that they show on a regular basis and the films that they showcase on a regular basis, what emerges is a very white, very mainstream, very problematic collection of movies and particularly this reinforcement of certain films as being essentials and belonging in the cinematic canon. So when you're talking about films like Gone with the Wind or The Jazz Singer or Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, suddenly what's beginning to emerge is, well, actually these films aren't that bad. Well, actually, you know, yeah, there's some problematic stuff in there, but we're just not gonna really pay attention to that. And that, that has begun to deeply trouble me, uh, particularly given that TCM is one of the major voices of classic cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Your article is great. I hope everyone will go and read it. We'll make sure to link it in the show notes too. But um, yeah, I think that was the thing that really frustrated me was I was looking at it and it's not, the problem isn't that they want to go back and take a more critical look at these films. Cause I think that that is totally fair and it's something that should happen. I, I got the sense just looking at the way the conversation was playing out that the, the, the reframing is not in the like, yeah, we need to look at this from a different perspective. It was more like, well, I really love this movie and I want to justify it rather than feeling guilty about it. That's how it comes across. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just like, that's not, you know, there are lots of movies I like that have problematic elements to them. And some that I've been like, I just can't watch anymore. Others, I'm just like, you know what? I know this movie's problematic, but I love it. And I'm going to just watch it anyway. And um, and I don't think either of those is necessarily bad. It's all in how you approach it. But yeah, this whole thing of like, well, but Gone with the Wind is really female empowerment movie. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. That one was just like, <laughs> What? Yeah, see, with Gone with the Wind, with Gone with the Wind, I actually, I don't, I don't see the argument for female empowerment, but I do see, a, often Scarlett O'Hara in particular has been lifted as this, this really strong female character, and she right. is, you know, she's, she's also even though the owner. movie ends with her begging for her man to come back and not yeah. leave her, like it's oh. still, it's still deeply problematic. Gone with the Wind has all kinds of problems beyond the racism, which is really an amazing thing for a film to do you're just like man you just got everything in there it hits the jackpot yeah <laughs> um but so so if you are talking in a very narrow sense about someone like scarlett o'hara it's like okay i can see where you can make some arguments about this character right seven brides for seven brothers i'm like 
this entire film is about is a musical is like a technical or musical about a, a bunch of dudes who abduct women from the neighboring town like kidnap them hide them in like their remote cabin and the villains of the piece are the men who try to rescue them yeah like that's that's which are mostly their fathers <laughs> there's an entire song about the rape of the sabine women like there's a song about that mm-hmm. and and i'm always like it, it is it's such an odd film to continue to Valerie's because yeah there's great dancing and singing in it but then actually look at the story yeah. like in, in what universe is this in any way female empowerment and stuff like that I mean yeah okay the the eldest brother's wife is like hey you guys probably shouldn't have done that what the fuck but beyond that like it the whole film kind of treats this as this dashing romantic comedy or something and it's very much not like Like, oh they see they all worked out they were happy at the end you know it was just a means to an end no no women want to be abducted i guess like but but it it is that kind of it's it's that that um it's to to degree it's a justification of rape Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's that's what the undercurrent of it all is. And in fact, that's that's I believe like the the story that this is actually based on is like they were literally raped. They were carried off and you yeah. know forced to become the wives of these brothers. Uh, and, and so, first of all, very odd thing to make a a musical comedy about generally. But the fact that we're going to take this film and somehow try to reframe it as not problematic really is very troubling to me and that that seems to be what TCM is up to with a lot of these films is they're not really interrogating the the reality of these films and the problems of these films they're saying like yeah well it's kind of problematic but also isn't it nice you know it's like Mm -hmm. gone with the wind well yeah there's some racist but it's not like that racist yeah it's like isn't it though I think it is exactly and and so it was frustrating me too so I'm looking at what they're doing and how they're trying to go back and and kind of rewrite these discussions around these movies, but not in the way that I feel like they really should. But then on top of that, I was just like, okay, but wait, you're starting off with these two movies that you're claiming are female empowerment and it's March, it's Women's History Month, we have International Women's Day coming up on Monday or Tuesday. Um, dates have no meaning anymore to me, but... Uh, but it's so it's like okay all right let's see what tcm's doing this month you know because they just had that series about like women make movies which my frustration in that was first of all it's a dude making a movie about how women make movies second of all it was just like i only watched one or two episodes of it but it was just like a collection of clips about these movies and it's like you don't show any of these movies on tcm like hardly ever and then I was just like, well, let's look a little bit at what their lineup is. So I went to HBO Max because they have a TCM hub channel thing on HBO Max, which does have more movies than, than are available just on the TCM um, on demand through like if you have cable or YouTube TV or whatever. And I looked and it was just like, I didn't count up all the movies that are directed by women, but it's like, okay, <laughs> They want to, you know, everyone wants to praise Agnes Varda, who was a great director, and and I will praise her to the end of the earth. 
but she actually i don't i guess people don't realize this but she directed a lot more movies than just cleo from five to seven and that's like all each all tcm ever wants to show or talk about with agnes varda is cleo from five to seven and it's like come on there's so much more and then i'm just scrolling through the list and it's like oh, okay cool there's a a penny marshall film in here jumping jack flash and you know there's a few but it's like you know if you want to start telling you you want to put out this series about how women make movies and you want to talk about like oh well these classic films are actually you know really strong you know female empowerment movies how about go back and show some of the classic films that were made by women like i don't understand why they keep pretending these movies don't exist they keep adding to this narrative Mm -hmm. that erases these films exactly and and a lot of the films that we're talking about are also in the public domain so there are some films that they probably just don't have the rights to yeah which i understand but there are other films particularly silent ones that are in the public domain that you can literally watch on youtube Mm -hmm. right for free and and they still are not showing those films they're still not even really talking about them and and there does seem to be this pattern with a lot of what tcm does and you pointed this out to me yesterday that they will they will create a series of something. So they'll say, we're gonna talk about, you know, racism, or we're gonna talk about, um, we're gonna talk about female filmmakers. And they'll do that for, you know, an hour or two hours once a week or something like that. And then everything else that they're showing are just kind of the standard straight white male directors, classical Hollywood stuff, nothing that really departs from that, nothing that really departs from that narrative. If you go through, I, I actually did a quick scan and granted I am not like, I did not sit there and like write down every, everything. So I may have missed something, but still, if you do a quick scan of their March schedule this year, there are, there's no acknowledgement of Women's History Month that I can tell. There are very few female filmmakers that are being shown. The only one that I was able to find was Anya Varda. And she has two films, uh, Black Panthers and I think um, Lions and Lovers or something like that, being shown at 2 a.m. Jeez. <laughs> on TCM. And I was going through that, I was just like, meanwhile, they're showing films directed by like Dumber Davies and Alfred Hitchcock and Gene Kelly and Powell and Pressburger and everything. It's like, okay, these are great films, but this is Women's History Month. You can't even, you can't even dedicate a day to showing films by female directors. And I know that they have enough films in their library that they can show, they can at least spend a day showing films by female directors. I know that, mm-hmm. but they're not yeah. doing it. And so one of the things that I, I think this has kind of revealed at some level is that I don't think that TCM is particularly interested in changing the narrative. What they're interested in is continuing to reinforce the same things that they've always said are essentials as being essentials. They are basically excusing the enjoyment of certain types of films. So the enjoyment of films like Gone with the Wind, because it's actually female empowerment, never mind the racism, never mind the (laughs) other elements of sexism in the film. Let's just talk about that part. But Hattie McDaniel won an Oscar, so it proves (laughs) that Hollywood's okay. And they were okay back in the 30s. Well, and, and the thing, you know, we've talked a lot about Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind is a fucking easy mark. That's mm-hmm. the thing. Gone with yeah. the Wind is, is a film that has been talked co- about constantly, constantly by film, by film buffs, by film scholars, by critics, by viewers, etc. 
as a, a truly deeply problematic film. It's usually, it's often talked about in the same breath as Birth of a Nation. This is something that has been examined over and over and over again. I don't know why TCM has decided that they need to re-examine it again, other than the fact that they seem to be trying to whitewash it a second time or a third time or 15th time. Um, while also kind of paying lip service to this whole idea of, well, you know, well, we're interrogating these kinds of films. Um, in, in fact, none of the films that they are showing in the reframed section are particularly challenging films. You can, you know why they're being shown, in other words, right? Yeah. So you know why Breakfast at Tiffany's is being shown. It's pretty obvious. You know why the jazz singer is being shown. They've also made some very odd choices, like Swing Time is I, I would never argue that swing time isn't problematic, but it's like a you could practically cut out the problematic number from swing time and utterly avoid the the issue of racism in that film because that's the only problem with it, right? So it's it's this weird balance between films that are either so explicitly racist or sexist that you know you don't even have to read into the subtext; you just have to read the text or have characters or scenes or musical numbers that you can almost dismiss. You'd be like, well, it's bad, but we're just gonna ignore it. Um, and it's this really weird balance. So it's not trying to, to really interrogate the issues of, of classic films. It's excusing classic films at some level. And it's not dealing with some of the more interesting elements of the classical period, including the fact that there were women directors, that there were women writers, that there were black directors and black writers, that there was more to be discussed than just like, oh, Hattie McDaniel won an Oscar for Gone with the Wind, so everything's fine. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, and, and it's funny too, because, and the reason I feel like that was actually a really good um, transition from our first topic was just uh, kind of accidentally, was just because when you talk about TCM in any sort of a critical way, the TCM fan base gets really upset and it's like they just close ranks and no no tcm is great they do all this stuff they've you know and and i i don't want to dis discount some of what they have done because when my local i was telling you this when my local um you know our local tv station used to show classics all day saturday and sunday and when that stopped, it was TCM that kind of became my my gateway into a lot of films that I didn't know about or that had not had the opportunity to see before. And so it's, it has done some good. But, you know, the 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 essential series that Robert Osborne used to host, not to not to say anything about him, but it's like they just kind of decided what these essentials were and then just stuck with that, just to your point. And so it's like in this world, in this, in this, this time where we're having access to so much more information to so many more people, filmmakers that we didn't know about before, they have this amazing opportunity and this built-in platform to really do some good and really teach people about film history. And they've chosen to just not do it. And instead, yeah. now we have Criterion coming along who's like, well, we'll fill in those gaps and they do amazing stuff because they don't just have like, you know, their five or six regular hosts. They bring in filmmakers to have conversations. Like it's really cool to watch 
you know, Bong Joon-ho talk about some of the films that inspired him and Ava DuVernay and, and some of these other directors that, you know, occasionally they get to appear on TCM or whatever, but it's just a completely different situation. So yeah. I know we've talked and praised Criterion a ton this on this podcast and they don't even sponsor us, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, we would take it if they wanted to, but um, it's just, you know, they really have a much, uh, a much more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It just, it feels more like they actually have a vested interest in preserving film history, the actual film history, and not trying to turn it into something it isn't. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that TCM, the more that we look at TCM, uh, it feels much more like they're curating, they're curating a collection, but they're curating a very specific kind of collection. And they're giving, like you say, so the, this whole issue of the essentials, um, they're giving a certain kind of credence to very specific kinds of films. Um, and they're really only allowing for a certain kind of discussion of these films. There is this veneration, particularly of classical Hollywood, by, and I don't see that there's anything wrong with saying, we've talked about how important classical films are, but there's this veneration of classical Hollywood that then turns into this sense that it was this wonderful dream factory that, you know, it's, it's this almost nostalgic view of these films rather than taking any sort of time to critique them, taking any sort of time to truly criticize them. And when they do, only really paying lip service to it. So doing it in a very limited way. Um, and and it, yeah, it, it's become more problematic. And I think it has become more problematic as sort of the, as streaming has become more prevalent, as we've gotten things like originally like Filmstruck uh, and then the Criterion Channel, as we have more availability of a lot of different kinds of films that people are suddenly going like, oh, there's this whole, there's this whole world outside of this very specific kind of cinematic canon. And I do think that in many ways, TCM has curated the cinematic canon for pop culture. Um, and that is something that I don't think a lot of classic film fans have really dealt with. The fact that they have a very white mainstream cinematic canon and they're not departing out of that and they're not really criticizing it. I mean, even if you look at the Reframed series, you've got, for the most part, you've got a, a black female critic in the middle of a bunch of white guys. And that's the way that, that's the way that everything is being framed. So I don't want to accuse them of anything, but it feels like they're trotting someone out in order to kind of give credence to the way that they're approaching their films. Um, and that there's something deeply uncomfortable about all of this stuff. Uh, and, and in particular, also the way that the fandom of TCM then defends them being like, well, they do such a great job for classic films. Just like, yeah, but we've got to start breaking away from this. They are a problem and they're becoming more of a problem and they're the, their issues are becoming more prevalent yeah yeah well and and it's it comes back to something that we talked about a couple weeks ago where it's like just going back on this essentials thing like you have to be careful with your word choices but you also have to be careful how you interpret certain words too and like what we talked about before was when someone says a movie is important that gives it sometimes the uh 
the unfair expectation that that also means it's good and that's the same thing with the essentials like i think that started off with like yeah these are essential films that anybody who loves movies should have seen and i would say that gone with the wind is probably still one of those but you need to watch it from a critical perspective not from an entertainment one and um and yeah, so when people hear essential, they're like, oh, these are the the great movies from old Hollywood. And, you know, and it's it, it shouldn't be that way. It it that word should mean something different. Yeah, it, it's uh, to be honest, I think the TCM is framing itself as as pure entertainment, really, yeah. when it comes down to it. These are films that you are there to be entertained by. They're not really films that you're there to interrogate mm-hmm. in any sense. And I think that, you know, and again, I, I want to avoid being like, oh, Criterion is perfect and should be like venerated or everything. They're not, right. they have their own problems. Um, but one of the things that Criterion in terms of the way that they curate their system seems to be trying to do is to get people to think about the films that they're watching, to not just treat it as this is a piece of entertainment, but that also this is a historical document. This is um, representative of something and maybe should be watched in tandem with all of these other films that are related to it in some way so that we kind of build a different picture of what cinema actually looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I just pulled up TCM's list on uh, the On Demand. I don't remember why. I think I was looking for something and I'm just (laughs) scrolling through all these movies going, why did I pull this up? I don't know. I don't know, but there are not very many movies directed by women, directed by anybody who's not white, and it's very frustrating. They don't get to be the ones that talk about. <laughs> like, yeah, they're done. <laughs> I'm done listening to them. <sighs> yeah, it's so frustrating. Well, and then like on the the HBO, the TCM hub on HBO Max, it's like some of the movies that are there as classics i'm like Mulholland drive like that was this century <laughs> i don't know or uh, what were some of the other ones that i saw in there i already closed it but i was just like i am i have questions <laughs> yeah there are definitely some on there and and i think that some of that is a limitation of what hbo max is allowing and how all of the various streaming rights work yeah so i don't want to blame them too much but also i'm kind of like i what you people are calling classics is becoming looser and looser it's it's beginning to remind me of um of amc yes back when american movie classics is what it used to stand for (laughs) i remember when amc actually showed classic films that was back in the bad old days and Mm -hmm. and at a certain point it began breaking down like suddenly they began showing all these films i'm like that was from like two years ago (laughs) (laughs) that's a classic and then they started like the well it's a new classic it was an instant classic it's like that's not how classic works (laughs) Yeah, and and I remember watching that just like I because I remember the decline, right? And I was just like, and that's kind of what some of the the TCM stuff on HBO Max reminds me of. Uh, yeah, but I don't know, man. I mean, some of them are great movies, but it's like, why is that on your classics channel? I don't, I don't know. Anyway, but yeah, the point is, don't listen to people that are talking about racism in Hollywood and trying to say that it wasn't that bad from the same people who won't show oscar michaud films yeah that's all i'm saying yeah and again 
which are mostly in the public domain you yeah. can show them there's no reason why they can't show them uh yeah i watched a couple of them on youtube and the quality's not great but also you know maybe it's good time to restore some of them and help fix that problem <laughs> might be a good use of some people's time just saying anyway um yeah so on that note I, there's a question i was sent a couple weeks ago that i keep meaning to ask or answer and i keep not getting around to it and it has to do with cancel culture and i feel like i want to give it some time but we've already spent so much time on um tcm and we want to move on to other things so kenny i apologize i'm gonna put it off one more time but next week i will talk about this uh this question that you asked i have not forgotten um and i will do it next week i promise so um but what we did want to our main topic that we wanted to talk about before all this tcm stuff came up uh was we wanted to continue our conversation because even though black history month is over black cinema is not <laughs> and uh so we wanted to talk about sort of more contemporary um experiences in black cinema and uh, filmmakers actors so um first of all uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about the 70s and black exploitation and the rise of the divine pam greer who randomly was tweet was trending on twitter this morning did you see this i saw that and and i clicked on it i was just like oh my god no what happened <laughs> what happened did she so do sad no no nope, she, she didn't dead? do anything did she do something horrible like i was just like it's not, not even pam her greer. birthday <laughs> it's some random asshole trying to claim that she wasn't hot and i'm just like fuck you man have you seen any pictures of pam greer <laughs> like she's so hot have you seen any movies with pam greer i mean exactly. pam greer like i think had a stipulation in her contract that she had to take her shirt off in every single movie she made for a while there <laughs> and like yeah i don't know some sometimes sometimes i feel like men just really want to announce that they can't get boners like mm -hmm. it's it's a very bizarre trend <laughs> it's like isn't there medication they can take for that <laughs> Yeah, it's like paid for by all most health insurances, you yeah. know, unlike yeah. abortion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anywho. <laughs> so um black exploitation films. I, you know, I was looking at a list today and I was like, oh, I've seen more of these than I I thought. Um so let's talk a little bit about sort of where this subgenre came from and uh i was just pulling something up here but do you want to talk a little bit about the rise of black exploitation and what that even is um okay yeah i mean black exploitation is exactly kind of what it says in the title <laughs> it, it is they're exploitation films um that are primarily featuring black casts uh very often directed by black directors and usually directed at black audiences although black exploitation is one of those genres that crossed over to um mainstream to mainstream white audiences fairly quickly partially because of this whole kind of rise of the exploitation film and the popularity of it um and this was mostly taking place in the 1970s i think that uh sweet sweetback's badass song is sort of the first the first night again you always want to go like is it the first black exploitation film but it's usually cited as being the first black exploitation film um and it's it's a it's a very bizarre film, fairly low budget, but uh, very much about 
this kind of badass black man who um, begin, who begins fighting the white establishment. And a lot of the films deal with black characters who kind of run afoul of the white establishment in some way um, and wind up getting into these major conflicts with uh, white, particularly white cops, white authority figures. You have a lot of different kinds of films that are being made in the genre. So um, horror, uh, kind of crime thrillers, even some just basically melodramas and things like that. Um, some of my favorites, to be honest, are, are the horror films because they're, they're this interesting combination of like, campy and actually quite serious on underneath everything the blackula films are awesome movies um and i i find it really fascinating how they can take this you know fairly standard vampire narrative and actually begin to turn vampirism and the discussion of vampirism into issues of drug addiction um of the way that white culture cannibalizes black people of the kind of a criticism also of the way that black people um uh the way so one of the things that happens in i think scream blackula scream is blackula begins going after members of the black community that he views as quote enslaving other black people um, and so there's this inherent critique of drug culture and of um, culture of violence and culture of uh, exploitation of women and prostitution that comes into play in all this. And this is all in the midst of like a vampire movie. <laughs> so the, one of the other ones is um, Sugar Hill, which deals with, uh, <laughs> which deals with zombies and like it is, sort of the zombie vampires and voodoo and like all of this crazy shit but at the same time it's, it's dealing with that same kind of thing of um black bodies being used by the white establishment black bodies being used by other black people to exploit black culture uh and and it it, it winds up telling these really fascinating narratives there's also been a lot of um critique of black exploitation uh because they do tend to rely on stereotypes so there's a question of like, is this turning, um, is this basically making, reinforcing some of the stereotypes of black people for a, a more mainstream white audience, kind of confirming the fact that, oh yeah, all black people are um, pimps and hookers and, and drug violent, dealers and, and violence yeah. and all of those things. So there's a lot of tension that goes into that, but very often this has been treated as, um, definitely a step in the right direction in terms of equality on screen and of actually representing uh, black characters as being very powerful very strong um and fighting back against uh white exploitation yeah and then you get the rise of amazing people like pam greer exactly <laughs> yeah exactly um it's funny i was scrolling through a list of like notable black exploitation films and I saw, um, which was it? There was one of the James Bond films was on here. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, it's live and let die. Oh, God. That is not a black exploitation <laughs> film. I was like, if you have a white hero, it is not a black exploitation film. It's just a little bit racist. Um, <laughs> anyway. I don't know why anyone would consider that black exploitation. I mean, no. I guess if like a black James Bond type character like murdered, straight up murdered James Bond, which I would 100% support. Oh, I would uh, absolutely be down for that movie. 
<laughs> well, but I, I do think that that's like one of the issues that uh, you begin to deal with when you talk about black exploitation is that then you get more mainstream white films kind of using these tropes mm-hmm. and using images and music and actors, etc., and kind of taking over the genre at some level. So James Bond turning into this black exploitation film. Right. Because white people ruin everything. Yeah, we really do. <laughs> we we do our best. Um, but yeah, but you do get some some uh characters from this time that uh have had kind of a new life like dolomite i f- i finally saw the original dolomite film because of dolomite is my name which is a fantastic movie it's on netflix go watch it and it, they actually do some side-by-side stuff at the end with kind of like what they did with um the disaster artist in room where it shows sort of like this is what they did to recreate some of these these moments but i was just like i gotta go back and watch dolomite now and it's (laughs) it's something it's a crazy movie um but it's just there's something even though uh, like you said even though it does give way to sort of reinforcing some of the stereotypes about black culture there's still something um empowering in a a group getting to make those films themselves and getting to tell those stories and just like make these crazy crazy movies like blackula like foxy brown that um like they're silly and they're fun to watch um and they would play so much differently if they were made by white people yeah definitely and and then you get those films that there's some debate about whether or not they're black exploitation so um ganja and hess which is a a fairly early um vampire movie that spike lee then remakes much later on as the sweet blood of jesus and it's it's an interesting film because it's much closer to being what we would describe as an art film but Mm -hmm. because it has some of these stock characters and and has this like un- horror undercurrent about um, about black culture and vampirism, it it often gets categorized as a black exploitation film. But so it's it straddles an interesting line. Um, you also have to note the fact that these films develop in the United States at a time when the studio system has been broken pretty much completely. You've got new American cinema. Um, you've got a lot of auteurs who are working. Uh, you have studios like Roger Corman's American International and um, a whole bunch of other young directors who are kind of coming along. So there's a lot of space for a lot of different kinds of films to be made and to be marketed to different audiences. Yeah, yeah. And then, so you move from the 70s into the 80s and film kind of goes through another really big shift where um, there's still a lot of independent films being made but there's a lot of like just bigger budget studio movies but it's not in the same way that the old studio system used to exist it's more of like a sort of a case-by-case basis so you're not getting someone signed on for like a three picture you know or contracted or whatever like like in the old days but um there were some really interesting things that came out of the 80s especially when with regards to black filmmakers it was um our introduction to people like Spike Lee, which um, I actually had the opportunity, it was a totally random thing, but I had the opportunity this week to um, do a like a Q&A panel discussion type thing with Barry Brown, who is a director, but he also has 
been Spike Lee's editor on many, many of his films over the years. And it was really fun to talk to him. He's white, but it was really fun to talk to him about working with um, with Spike Lee and how they just kind of learned together how to make movies and just listening to him talk about like the early days. He also uh, kind of, he, I didn't realize it just, I never had put it together, but Mira Nair um, also came up around that same time. So they all were kind of just these contemporaries that worked together a lot. And it's interesting listening to that and thinking like, oh, wow, it's, it's, there really was kind of this opening up of opportunities for new types of films from new types of filmmakers. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to go somewhere else with that and I don't remember where. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I would like to, I think this makes a good bridge because Spike Lee uses a lot of, of black exploitation styles uh-huh. and, um, and things like that. And he does, he uses that and kind of takes it in a different direction very often and often in a much more serious direction than a lot of the black exploitation films do. Um, he also does horror. And so, yeah. you know, I mentioned The Sweet Blood of Jesus as kind of, and, and it, that his version of Ganja and Hess is a much more, um, I don't want to put this it's a much more linear film uh there's it's less like kind of free-flowing uh in the same way but as a result it's just as interesting in just a different way um but so a lot of what spike lee does as as we've talked about before has been this kind of interaction between films that he watched when he was young films that he has related to as as he grew up and the history of hollywood the history of cinema generally uh and he kind of folds all of that into his own work and then comes out with something that both deals with that and then is also dealing with whatever the, the issue that he of contemporary culture that he's telling a story about. Um, I think that we should talk a little bit about black horror. So black horror films, horror films that specifically focus on race. Mm-hmm as a thing and one of the big ones which was not made by a black filmmaker is Candyman. yes uh what are your feelings about Candyman, karen uh they're complicated <laughs> because oh man first of all i cannot wait for nia da costa candy man um nia da costa's movie but uh yeah i so i remember i first saw it back like whatever year it came out um I saw it that year and then it freaked me out so much that I didn't watch it again until like last year because <laughs> I was like oh I gotta watch that again in preparation for the new movie and then the new movie hasn't come but um yeah I I feel like it's such an interesting idea and I like I like the the concept of it sort of but it's one of those that I, I really, part of the reason I'm looking forward to the new film is because I feel like this is a movie where it's like, why is there a central female character in this movie who is white? Like, this is so obviously supposed to be a film where race is really, really important and race has everything to do with who the Candyman is and, and what has happened to him and why he does what he does. And then you've got this central heroine that is is this white grad student and it i I don't know my my feelings on that movie are complicated (laughs) well can candy man 
Candyman is interesting because one of the things that it deals with is this idea of um, uh, inter interracial relationships and the use. So you've got these two, again, fairly stock characters. So you've got this very intelligent, erudite um, black man and this very intelligent, erudite white woman. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the film is about their relationship, weirdly enough. And her and this whole concept of her desire to be victimized by him um yeah. which is you know very interesting but it adds an extra layer onto it the fact that she is white adds an extra layer onto that because you're talking about a lot of the stereotypes that have been um used against black men and in order to kill them literally right so the relationship mm -hmm. between black man and a white woman um I think that this gets even more complicated when you begin to, to look at who Candyman as a character is victimizing for most of the film. Because they keep he keeps on going after uh, people living in Cabrini Green. Right. Who are primarily poor uh, urban Blacks. Right, because this is a project now. The land yeah. where he was, was killed is now the projects. And he doesn't really venture outside of that area. Yeah. And, and I, it's, it's very weird. And in fact, I, I know that a number of black critics have talked about the fact that it doesn't quite make sense that this guy who was a slave who was murdered by a bunch of white people would turn around and then victimize poor black people. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, it's an odd film in a lot of ways. And in, on the one hand, it's, it deals with these very interesting themes and stereotypes, etc. And then in another sense, you're like, it doesn't quite work. Yeah, the way that it needs to, I guess. And, and we do have to say that the original Clive Barker story has nothing to do with race at all. It's about class. Mm -hmm. And and so to transpose it then to Cabrini Green and, and Chicago and this kind of issue between white people and black people complicates it in a way that can is both really fascinating but also potentially quite problematic. Yeah, yeah. And I know you we, we want to talk more about um, horror in general, but just thinking about what happens with this movie and it's like, if you look at all kinds of, I know this was like, 1990 or something but if you go backwards just a little bit to the movies that were coming out in the 80s and it's like there were some really great films that um that featured you know black stories black casts um but they were they were stories that were being told by white people still and even though like i love coming to america and the original um and i think it's a it's a really hilarious movie and it's really great but then it's like you know it's directed by what's his face that we don't talk about <laughs> and um I, I literally just blanked on his name it's, um, it's john landis isn't it? yes yeah. yes <laughs> like i have tried so hard to block him out of my my existence but <laughs> with good reason yeah but so it's like that's a great movie but it's also still directed by a white dude and glory same thing it's like telling this story about these civil war soldiers you know these this black battalion of civil war soldiers being led by a white dude directed by a white dude and it's just like it, it it's like you see the progress but it's also still like it took someone like spike lee john singleton um some of these directors to say you know what we're gonna make our own movies our own way and they were met with a lot of backlash and controversy 
because of the way that they wanted to tell stories and so going into the 90s and that continued but it it started to ease up a little bit but yeah then you have Candyman, which is this great opportunity and it's like man i would love to see john singleton's Candyman, <laughs> you know yeah and that's why i think that that i would be fascinated to see what nia Costa does with it mm-hmm. um because here we have and and i think that she's going to that that you know she's going to respect the original and then do her own thing with right because this. this is definitely a sequel it's not a remake it's yeah. not a different version this is a direct sequel to the original movie yeah and i think that this ha- it has a lot of potential to be um to actually deal with some of these issues that we're talking about from the perspective you know of no longer than 1992 but 2000 you know whatever we're in 2021 <laughs> um the the other uh, uh, black horror film from the '90s that I kind of just wanted to mention really quickly is Tales from the Hood, mm-hmm. which is it's a horror it's sort of a horror comedy anthology film. Yeah, <laughs> um, that there is a lot of that humor and sort of uh, sort of you know okay this is this is a little bit of a joke don't take this too seriously. It's modeled after a lot of the Roger Corman films from the 1960s and '70s where you've got you know four separate stories. Um, that that actually all come together in the end, but mm-hmm. um, it, it is a film that is is directed and produced by black filmmakers, uh, and is you know I think there's there's some there's been some criticism about it in the way that it represents black on black violence and things like that, but it it is actually dealing in the sense of a horror film um, with some really interesting things, and you can see where you're talking about. Um, you're talking about a film that is not being made at all from a white perspective right yeah i remember when that movie came out and first of all they did not know how to market it because the commercials at the time the 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 advertising for it were just so odd and it was like i i was not clear on what it even was supposed to be it really did from from my memory and this could be a little bit um flawed but surprise surprise i don't remember everything perfectly but um i remember it just looking like this super violent um movie that was just like i don't know it was kind of around the time that uh that like gang violence was just kind of always front and center on the news and it just seemed like it was sort of this glorification of of that and it's very much not it's such a different movie from what they made it seem like it was going to be i mean i remember to the point where there were rumors that like people were planning on like shootings at movie theaters and like in in la west la there was like um the night that the movie opened there were like police officers standing guard at the movie theater and stuff um just because they were prepared for like big violence and and things and it was just like what (laughs) now you know looking back now it's so silly but at the time it was just like oh black people are making a movie like let's all beware because who knows what's gonna happen (laughs) it's like oh my gosh (laughs) and this is in the 90s in (laughs) los angeles well you know the 90s in los angeles was not exactly (laughs) a time of great it's true racial equality and definitely not yeah but it's just so funny because it's like you know california has always liked to 
applaud itself for being so you know like progressive and it's like no really it's not (laughs) so but yeah it's a good film though it is it It is is a very good film and it it is not whatever people were saying that it was (laughs) that's wild no it's not gonna cause any riots it's yeah i mean i remember similar conversations when boys in the hood came out too Mm -hmm that movie too people were expecting it to be violent and it's like just based on the rumor that a black man directed a movie about the black experience in a you know a less um um less wealthy neighborhood you know uh it just it's amazing to me and this is the thing like i was telling you the other day i finally for the first time watched bamboozled and uh there's a lot of things i could say about that film and maybe i will write about it (laughs) another project that i will say i want to write and then i never do but um i think the thing that really hit me the most was first of all there are a couple of things one is a conversation where um damon wayans and uh, jada pinkett smith when they're presenting this minstrel show idea to this group of white people and they're all horrified at first and like we can't we can't do this and then they start to convince these white people of why it's okay and then it very quickly becomes this like oh well my black friends say it's all right so then it's fine so then they stop like stop questioning it which was like oh huh that's interesting they totally watching the way that they got played was like wow i need to you know really interrogate myself and and um, so I thought that was a really interesting way to address the whole like, well, I have a black friend who, you know, kind of conversation. But then also uh-huh. what really struck me too, and we talked about this a little bit, was at the end, the montage mm-hmm. of just like decades of of terribly racist um, representation of black people in, in cinema, cartoons mainstream movies Mm -hmm. and how many of those movies and shows i watched as a kid and how many of them i loved as a kid and just realizing like man this messaging that i've received since i was very very young (laughs) is so damaging and and has had such a long lasting impact and it's been right there in front of our faces all along yeah it's it's a huge part of our culture and it's it's not something that a lot you know a lot of white people you don't we don't even question it because it's not about us at some level because we're like oh it's that's like a representation of black people which is not me so i'm not going to worry about it um yeah and then we internalize it and black people internalize it and react to it in in obviously in a different way than we do but it's so much a part of just like what we, how we exist in the, the culture that we exist in the media that we exist in. And it brings us back to something like TCM who will show things like Holiday Inn mm-hmm. without any kind of discussion, without any kind of disclaimer, without really addressing the fact that there is a huge part of that film that involves blackface and not, and it isn't just, it's, I don't never want to say, oh, it's just blackface. It isn't just blackface. It is like beyond blackface. Mm-hmm. It, it's and I remember seeing that that same montage when and I saw um, Bamboozled you know years ago I was probably too young for it to be honest <laughs> but I remember seeing that montage and seeing those images being like oh my god like all of the I've seen you know three quarters of these films that they're referencing 
and I didn't even think about it. Like it, it never clicked with me. And, mm. and that's, that's horrifying, but it's, it's also very important. And I think that that's the point for at least some of what Spike Lee is doing in that film. He's, he's talking to everybody, but he's also talking to white people and saying like, this is what you've lived with. This is what we've lived with. You need to think about this more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's funny because I know some of Spike Lee's films have gotten criticized for being too much, you know, directed at white audiences instead of black audiences. But it's like, I feel like there's such a an intentionality to that like he has some things to say and he wants to hold up a mirror to us and say hey this is what you're doing wrong and this is how you can fix it and yes and that's that's important too and and i think that's something that um just to get into even more current day um i think that's something that jordan peele did very effectively with get out was you know I mean, he just went, oh, you think you're not racist because you would have voted for Obama again? Well, let's talk about this, you know? And, mm -hmm. and it's it's great because <laughs> we do need to hear these messages. And part of that is because we suck. And part of that is because we've been programmed from very, very young. And yeah. we need to be deprogrammed. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that is how we advance. And I mean, we've talked about this in terms of feminism as well, that it's one thing for women to keep on saying you know, this is misogynist, this is sexist. The other thing is that men have to begin addressing it. You can't just keep, you know, it can't just be the burden on the people that are being discriminated against. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's the same thing when we're talking about issues of racism, that it can't just be Black people saying like, this is racist. We have yeah. to actually recognize what is racist and what isn't and how we have engaged with that and, and in a lot of ways profited from it as white people um without becoming defensive without saying like well but not me you know um and there is definitely a a major desire to say like well but i didn't do that it's just like no but you're profiting from it you might not have specifically done it but you have existed within this culture and you have in some way benefited from it so now it's time for you to deal with that yeah yeah it's funny when i was talking to um charles randolph like a year or two ago about the movie bombshell uh he wrote it and he produced it and it was one of those really frustrating interviews where i knew what i was there to interview him for and i knew what the purpose was and so i couldn't push as much as i would like to have done um but in that interview he basically was talking about you know i asked him where the idea for the project came about and it's you know it's the the movie about the ladies at fox getting sexually harassed um and he starts telling this story about how uh he was on the subway one one day it was like got to, he was going to the end of the line and it got to where there was like him and two other women on the subway and um one lady got off like at the stop that he was getting off at and so they both get off the train and she just like books it runs toward her car and at first he was just like what what's wrong like what's her problem and then he realized oh it's because she's afraid of me and so he said that part of it was that he really wanted to uh, tell this story that helped men understand what women go through and what they experience and i'm like okay that's a, a not a bad um motivation 
And there are some interesting ways to do that. <laughs> I don't think that what was accomplished with Bombshell was it. But I do think that there is some room for that. And sometimes it is, you know, people have to, to make films that are for the people that need to hear those messages. Um, but I would so much rather see in those case, kinds of cases, I would so much rather see men just listen to women. Don't watch Bombshell, watch The Assistant. <laughs> which was written and directed by a woman <laughs> yeah but i mean you know even in this case we're talking about films so films made by spike lee or jordan peele that one of the critiques exactly. might be that they are directed at white audiences and and i absolutely agree all films should not be directed at white audiences that is <laughs> right. absolutely true there are there should definitely be space for for films made by black people that are being directed at white audiences and that are forcing white audiences to look at and face and interrogate the in their investment in in racist stereotypes in racist systems etc and there there definitely has to be that space because without that space um it's just going to be white people talking to white people and being like ah yes racism is terrible isn't it yes but we're past it now you know um, and, and black people talking to black people. And we can't have that. We have to have that, that constant conversation. And also to force the, the privileged individual to actually step back and to listen yeah. um, and be willing to listen. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that Spike Lee and Jordan Peele and Ava DuVernay have done really well and why it's so particularly effective is because they're able to, to show it in a way of like, this is how you come across to us. This is how you sound. And like, I'm not aware of how I sound to people. You know, sometimes someone will say like, I'll say something and they'll question me on it. And I'm like, wait, that's not what I meant at all. And it's like, oh, I didn't realize it's how I sounded when I said this, you know? And so that's why we do need, uh, we need to hear, we need to hear from people like, this is how you come across when you see these things. But also then there's a lot of other movies that um, uh, like, yeah, I mean, even in Spike Lee's filmography, they're not all speaking to white people. You know, some of them are, are just, you know, he makes just really interesting films. I haven't even watched like probably half of his movies, but um yeah, so it's interesting to me, I guess, when he gets criticized for uh, for who his his target audience is, because I don't feel like it's 100% of what he's trying to do. And I also think when he does tell stories that are directed specifically to white people, it's for a very specific reason, and we need to listen to him. Mm -hmm. I agree. So what are some other um, more contemporary films that you would like to talk about? I mean, I, I think that we mentioned a lot of them. We mentioned um, mentioned Jordan Peele and Get Out and Us, which I, I did find really interesting. We've um, another one, another film that I just love and I think needed to get more uh, more love was Widows. Yes. Yes. Uh, and that that was one that I had a great theater going experience with because um, because I was in a packed theater in Times Square. When I went to see that movie and it was one of the few places that I could actually get a ticket for widows <laughs> and, and I was sitting there and there was these two like older women like 50s or 60s right beside me and and, and at one point when um when uh, the the villain picks up the dog 
Mm-hmm. And the woman beside me is just like, oh, you better put that dog down. I was like, <laughs> just like, don't you kill that. I was like, oh my God. Okay. Wow. Um, and, and I was actually thing. telling people like when I would recommend they watch it, I'm like, just the dog's going to be fine. Don't worry. <laughs> I had actually known that when I went into the movie because I was because someone had said that I was just like okay good all right awesome I actually don't need to have that tension with for in this exactly. particular film yeah um and then and then when and spoiler alert for widows if anyone has not seen it I'm going to reveal a, a bit of a plot twist um when she discovered when it's shown that Liam Neeson is alive mm-hmm. and again the woman next to me just like oh she better kill his ass <laughs> like was, and, and again it was this wonderful like audience experience um be sitting in this in this film that like was obviously just provoking so many reactions um yeah so i i think the widows widows deserved more than it was given yes oh my gosh yes it did and you know it's funny that movie's been on stars a lot and so it's one of those where it's become a movie where every time it's on, if I'm just scrolling through, I stop and watch it. So I've seen different pieces of it so many times now. And I love that. That's one That's one of the reasons that I keep, keep my YouTube TV subscription and don't cut the cord completely because I just love the experience of just scrolling through the guide and just randomly picking something that's already going. And that's how some of my favorite movies have become my favorite movies. It's not because of... of the what the experience of watching the entire thing but just watching bits and pieces of it and mm-hmm. and really getting to to just connect with like a section a performance a set you know whatever and widows has has definitely become one that's like i enjoyed it the first time i watched it but it's like the more that i've seen it and the more that i've i've just like lived in that experience of that film the more that i've grown to really appreciate how good it really is mm-hmm. I still would love to have seen it as a miniseries, but whatever, it's fine. Um, <laughs> so, um, but on that note, we did get a question, just speaking of widows and um, uh, Noah Saturn at Noah underscore Saturn. What is your favorite Daniel Kaluuya movie? Uh, I, honestly, I think that his performance in Widows is one of his best. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, and it's And part of that might be because I think that the only film that I had seen him in uh oh i might have seen him I'm, black panther might have come out before that but um uh the, his role in get out was kind of the quintessential role that i knew him from and then seeing him give this absolutely terrifying performance in widows <laughs> was just quite an interesting experience i i think he was great in that yeah well and that's the thing it's like okay so if i if i answer this question as it's asked my favorite Daniel Kaluuya movie, I think I would still say Get Out because that movie is just so much fun. It's really, really good. It's very clever. Um, it's sometimes freaky as hell, but it's also sometimes really funny. And it's just a great overall experience. I mean, Widows is too. Black Panther is also. But I think my favorite Daniel Kaluuya movie is get out but my favorite daniel kaluuya performance is in widows followed very closely by judas and the black messiah he's a good actor he really is he really is and he very well might be uh be an oscar winner this year we'll see yeah i hope so i hope so. i think he would deserve it definitely yeah absolutely 
Um, so is there anything else you wanted to, to mention? Any other um, no, movies I mean, or I, filmmakers? Or? I think we've only covered a portion of some of the things that we could have, but, um, but I, you know, I, I hope that we have talked about some really interesting things. Obviously we're not just gonna abandon these, these, uh, these films completely. Um, but I, I think that it's interesting to always look at the history, again, look at the history of films that have happened outside of some of the mainstream things, outside of the canon. Yeah. And, and to note what films should probably be added to it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and looking at people like Spike Lee and Tyler Perry and, and, um, Ava DuVernay and, um, Nia DaCosta, looking at, at what they've done and what they are continuing to do, not just for their own careers, but to support and promote other people as well and to lift up other voices, but also what they've done, um, this is this is something that we talk about all the time of why it's important to understand and and experience classic cinema because all of these filmmakers they they take what we've seen in classic cinema and they they use that as inspiration they use it as as like motivation to you know change the narrative they use it for all kinds of purposes but they couldn't do what they do as well as they do it if they didn't understand and hadn't had those experiences with classic film. Yeah. And as always watch more movies. Everybody just needs to watch more movies, watch more movies. It's, it's <laughs> easy to do. They're literally everywhere and you can watch them on YouTube for free on your phone right now. Just saying. <laughs> so uh, we would like to thank you all for joining us once again today uh, we would especially like to thank our patrons, Adriana, Ali, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much. If you would like to join them and become a patron yourself, it's patreon.com slash citizen dame. You get early access to the episodes, you get bonus episodes. We're um, planning a screening which we still haven't chosen the date yet but um that's coming up very very soon a little complicated by the fact that i'm moving this month so we'll see what we can work out but um yeah uh, lots of fun stuff on the way we also have our zazzle store if you want to buy some masks because even if you're vaccinated you should still wear a fucking mask and that is zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod we have our ko-fi uh ko-fi.com slash citizen dame and you can find us all over the webs as well. Um, we are, our uh, website is citizendamepod.com where you can go and read Lauren's great piece about TCM and a couple of things that I'm cooking up for this coming up week. Also, we brought back our Citizen Dame 5. So that's going to be starting to be a weekly thing again. So the first one's already up and look for our next one, new one every week. And uh, yeah, we're aiming for Tuesdays. So hopefully we can keep up with that. And uh, yeah, we also have our social medias. So you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. You can also reach out to us individually. Lauren, where are you at? I am on Twitter and Instagram at LH Business. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. So thank you as always. And we will catch you later. Bye. Hey! What's going on now? Come on, cut that shit out! You're moving out, brother. Out of town. And I mean it, Link.
You think you're back in with those people. But they gotta stick a dynamite up your ass and the fuse is burning. You understand me? Now I want you out. Oh, you. Who does she think she is? Well, that's my sister, baby. And she's a whole lot of woman.